When I'm having a good hair day, that's when I'm my best self. I feel good. I look great. And I will say, painting sulfate-free rose water collection is a part of that. The Rose Water Collection. It feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rose water because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. I'm Hugh Atchison. I'm a chef, a restaurateur, a traveler, and now I'm the host of The Passenger. People ask me all the time, you know, what's that list of places to go in this city, in that city? And this show is dedicated to that idea, immersing yourself in that culture and finding out what's intriguing and what we think about the future of that place as a visitor, as a passenger. The first season of The Passenger premieres February 27th. Subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And it is Pinups Week here on the podcast. That's right. Celebrating lady bodies. Lady bodies, the original duck faces. <laughs> Yeah, interesting, interesting to, to really, uh, figure that out. Yeah, and, and also, Caroline, the perils of getting your dress snagged on any possible surface. Oh my god, broom handles, uh, there could be a breeze, you could catch it in a phone booth. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's a, it was a glass housing of phones for, before people had cell phones. It's like that, uh, Doctor Who, whatchamacallsit. Right. Thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, like a cat with an extra long tail could be walking by. Whew. Next thing you know, there are your know. there are your panties. It was it was so hard to be a woman in the forties and fifties with your dress always flying up. Yes, but the good thing is pinups always looked delighted to get a little <laughs> bit of a breeze on their thighs. <laughs> you gotta air it out. You gotta air it out. Um, and Caroline, this reminded me of my college days when I wouldn't say that I went through a pinup obsession, but I still am. Not very good at apartment decoration. Not my knack. I am not a Martha Stewart. So I decided to cover one of my living room walls with uh, images from a Toshin pinup calendar. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh my gosh, these ladies are cute and it's retro and this will cover a surface. Yeah. And... Looking back now, that's an interesting choice that I've made for my wall decor. Yeah, a lot of people would say, oh, Kristen, you were identifying with the the obvious freedom and sense of, of fun sexuality these women were enjoying. And other people would say, Kristen, why are you buying into this oppressive kind of empty sense of femininity and female exploited sexuality. Yeah, and then other people would say, Kristen, why do you have such a tacky taste in (laughs) wall decor? Here is a normal poster. You could, you know, like Monet or something. We'll just, somebody should have just given you the poster of the cat hanging from the branch. Just hang in there. (laughs) But its tail is somehow still like hooking up underneath the woman's dress. Lifting it up. You just can't get away from it. <laughs> you can't. Um, so there is a 
precise definition of what a pinup is, even though most of us are probably familiar with pinup imagery. Yeah, in Tashin's Art of the Pinup by Diane Hansen, she defines a pinup as a provocative but never explicit image of an attractive woman created specifically for public display in a male environment. And so, Kristen, you were already transgressing. I know. What's wrong with you? And I will tell you this, that college apartment that I'm referring to was not a male environment (laughs) at all. All I did was kill goldfish and (laughs) panic about my future. I mean, accidentally kill goldfish. I'm not very good at keeping (laughs) them alive. The two weren't linked. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And it's not just poster images. Pinups were reproduced in their heyday on calendars, lighters, playing cards, in girly magazines as well. And, we, I mean, we still see pinup merch oh, like yeah. that today, too. Oh, hugely popular, which is, you know, part of why we're talking about it. Yeah. It's still hugely popular. Um, and Kristen and I found this great uh, link over at BuzzFeed that it had GIFs sh- uh, showing the original model for the pinup image and then the finished product. And it's fascinating because not only is it fascinating to see the original woman who modeled for all of these silly poses because she literally was like, oh, my butt's in the air and I'm holding my skirt up because a breeze is coming or whatever. But it literally illustrates how the artist uh, shrunk her waist, stretched her legs, boosted her bust, you know, gave her, where she might have just been making like a surprise phrase, gave her those duck lips. Yeah. I mean, this was the proto Photoshop Mm -hmm. going on right now. And that whole, oops, I dropped my panties, more prurient kind of pose, the thing that you would see more in girly magazines than on, say, a USO poster. That was something that an illustrator named Art Fram came up with. It was a very particular kind of gimmick that was then reproduced. And there, there's something apparently very appealing about that moment of, oh, no, where did all the elastic go? Well, that happened. But she never looks too, too concerned. She's like, well, I guess I'll just step on out, throw them away and go about my day. It's Hope a breeze doesn't come. It's like the art equivalent of like a naked dream. You know, because yeah. in your dream, when you're naked, you're like, maybe if I just stand behind this light pole, like no one will notice that I'm not wearing clothes. It's not as big a deal as if you suddenly were completely stark naked in public. Yeah. I mean, that, that is part of, though, the delight of the pinup, because very little phases her, it seems like. Yeah, she's very innocent. She She doesn't have a thought in that pretty, shiny, pale head. Well, let's talk a little bit about how pinups were conceived. And this is coming from Mary Elena Busek, whom we're going to cite a lot, not only in this podcast, but she also gets a nod in our follow-up podcast on Betty Page. And also, again, from Diane Hansen, who wrote the copy for Toshin's The Art of the Pinup. And Busek, though, really traces the pinup back to the 15th century, because that's when we get the printing press. And this allows for artistic reproductions that makes this kind of imagery, obviously not 1940s pinup imagery, but just imagery in general, more accessible to poorer classes. Yeah. So instead of going to a museum or, you know, wherever, you could have works of art hanging on your walls at home. 
And then as we move through the centuries, technological advancements obviously make it easier, cheaper, faster to create artistic reproductions and get those into people's homes or, you know, as the case may be, into their garages or break rooms, wherever they're hiding from their wives. Yeah, and alongside that, too, the rise of the middle class also creates this consumer base for it. And one thing that Busick talks about is that in the 19th century in particular, she says, quote, the female body is the ultimate signifier of modernity. And this, too, in the 19th century, in 1889, is when Thomas Murphy and Edmund Osborne print the first calendar featuring ads beneath the images because mm-hmm. the thing to remember about pinups is that it really started as advertising imagery. Yeah, look at my ad. Here's a pretty girl. And here's a calendar. Well, the the pretty girl who was on this first calendar was actually George Washington. He has beautiful <laughs> cheekbones. Um, Careful that a breeze doesn't catch his breeches. <laughs> Lift those wooden teeth right out of his mouth. Um, and not shockingly, it didn't sell well. Uh, the calendar market, so to speak, didn't really heat up until about 1903 with the release of the first girl calendar titled Cosette. And it makes sense that Cosette sold so well because these kinds of calendars were intended for workplaces. And at this time, workplaces were, I mean, except in very specific kinds of side industries like haberdashers, where you might have lady hat makers, um, they were still more exclusively male spaces. So you see pinups mostly in those kinds of break rooms of mm-hmm. yore in the 20s and 30s via these calendars. Yeah, and stepping back, though, to 1895, we've talked about the Gibson girl on the podcast before. She's sort of like the proto-pinup. And, and while she's technically more of a what's called glamour art, so more of something you might see in a fashion magazine as instead of just one of those hidden away calendars, she definitely was the first centerfold. And she ended up being reproduced on postcards, plates, calendars. Again, the same things that we eventually see pinups being put on. Well, and she also is really instrumental in terms of establishing this beauty ideal from fiction, really from Charles Dana Gibson's mind of, well, this is what a beautiful woman looks like. And it trickles down all the way to, for instance, her slender ankles that we talked about in our Kinkles podcast about how, well, the Gibson girl is putting her ankles on display. And this is a very new thing for fashion. So all of a sudden, well, they're slender. Well, you better have some slender ankles. And the Gibson girl was mimicked in Chandler Christie's The Christie Girl for the Century magazine. There was also Harrison Fisher's Fisher Girl, which was included in Puck magazine, and also Cosmopolitan from around 1912 to 1932. And all of these women are similarly beautiful and aloof. Yeah, it's it's interesting to watch the timeline of how advertising and the the day's media, watching it shape women's appearance and how women were expected to look. Because, I mean, it's not like the Christie girl, I'm looking at a picture, it's not like the Christie girl was particularly scandalous. Right. You know, she. it was like, oh, well, you, you just have your hair up in a bun. Well, it seems like, in a way, these Gibson girls and the Christie girls were more, not necessarily Targeted. I don't think that it was that specific, but they were more influential on women. They had a wider women's audience of this is what you need to look 
like. Whereas pinups were more, oh man, this is, look at this dame. Look at this broad over here. Well, so what's kind of evolving after we have the lovely Fisher girl and the prim and proper Christie girl, in the background, we evolve into the 20s and 30s where we get girly mags, which feature full color pinup girls on the cover. And then you even get pulp magazines that illustrate adventure, crime, detective, sci-fi stories. Again, all with you know, titillating pinup images. Yeah, and I'm sure it coincides, too, with the fact that women just in their day-to-day, fashion-wise, are showing more skin than ever before. Yeah. Um, so when it comes, though, to who really popularized the pinup, as we think of it today, a lot of it has to do with Esquire magazine. Esquire was all about some pinups. It was launched in 1933 as a magazine for affluent men who liked stylish clothes and sexy women and has anything really changed? Um, and it commissioned artists like George Petty to paint these idealized images of super hot babes, aka pinups. Yeah, and you'll also be familiar with magazines like The Steering This, uh, even today because you've got Vanity Fair, which features not paintings, but Super, super, obviously airbrushed images of young starlets dressed in the whole pinup gear, posed in a very stereotypical pinup fashion, just as part of a little Q&A feature off to the side on one page. But anyway, the popularity of these pinup girls in Esquire ended up spawning art cards that men and boys collected and traded like baseball cards. But as this popularity and sort of the commodification of it increases, by 1940, Esquire tells Petty, like, dude, you are asking for way too much money. And so they chuck him and hire Peruvian-born Alberto Vargas, who was already sort of a, not a household name, but he was a big deal in terms of painting images of women because he was the one behind the Ziegfeld Follies posters. Yeah, he was their official painter. Um, but if you've heard of... The Varga girls, you'll notice that it's not the Vargas girls uh, because Esquire made him drop the S in his name because they thought it sounded too possessive, which was uh, an interesting fact. And the first Varga girl that Esquire prints is a blonde and she's hanging out on the phone talking in a short black nightgown. Like you do. Like you do. And these Varga girls became mainstream propaganda, particularly during World War II, decorating not only bunkers and barracks, but also fighter planes and warships. And one statistic that we found said that from 1942 to 1945, Esquire delivered six million copies of its magazine to U.S. troops overseas and three million to the domestic military. Yeah, my grandfather during World War II, his airplane did not have a sexy lady on it, although many of his friends' planes did. He instead just had it painted with the name Saucy Sal, which was my grandmother. So he still had a cute little name on it, but but no sexy lady. Saucy Sal, yeah. I love that. Oh, and so my, my mother Sally is Sally Jr. So was your grandmother saucy? Uh, she she was a very sweet lady, but maybe she was saucy with him. She maybe had a saucy side. Good, good saucy Sal. Well, I mean, obviously, you know. And everybody knew about the popularity mm-hmm. of these Esquire images. At one point, comedian Bob Hope said, "Our troops are ready to fight at the drop of an Esquire." And can we describe sort of the style of the Varga girl? Because she's very distinct. I mean, she kind of has like a very particular 
kind of thing going on. Yeah, it's it's sort of it. She's both cartoony and photorealistic all at the same time, because, I mean, she's obviously incredibly buxom. She's posed in a very kind of unnatural way. She's super leggy, super busty, super blonde. Or if she's a little more dangerous, maybe she's super brunette. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, to see how pinups played into the military imagery as well, because you have pinups in sexy pinup uh, military uniforms. You even have one. Uh, she's topless, but you know she's covering her side boob. You can't. You can only see her bare back, and she is pulling out. Uh, she's presumably putting on the uniform of a women's auxiliary corps. So. It's sort of sly in the implication that, yeah, these male soldiers are definitely into these pinups and they find it patriotic and they're kind of fighting for her. And also it, you know, gives them uh, a little titillation in the trenches. But women were aware of them, too. So it was also a way of saying, well, ladies, if you want to be sexy and desirable, well, look at this. Look at this blonde putting on her women's auxiliary corps uniform. That can be you, too. Why does she need a shirt when she has a, a whack hat? It's totally fine. It's true. I mean, and also, by the way, uh, listeners, the hat box <laughs> for this whack hat, whack being the w- women's army auxiliary corps, is, is also beautifully detailed. It's like in this lovely striped uh, hat box, which, you know, that's fun. I like it. <laughs> Who doesn't like a hat box, Caroline? And it was this beautiful image of this beautiful woman who was used to help sell war bonds, recruit women into the war effort, and even motivate soldiers, sort of remind them what they're fighting for. They're fighting for this blonde, all-American, busty babe to, you know, come home to, come home safely to. Yeah, there were these stories throughout the war of dead soldiers being found with Varga girl pinups on their persons or these calendars. Uh, one, one soldier uh, died in combat and uh, they found his Varga girl calendar that he had used also as sort of a diary as well. So, I mean, they were very much intertwined with World War II. Um, but on the home front at Esquire, uh, Varga's Vargas's relationship with a magazine sours and leaves in 1946. And in 1955, after the war, little magazine called Playboy launches. Yeah, and also just a year after that, Esquire finally gets in on the game itself and launches its own girly calendars. So even though they had sort of helped launch this whole pinup thing, they had not had their own calendars up to this point. So once it's been a thing for several years and once Playboy is on the scene, they're like, oh, well, we should probably start exploiting images of naked women, too. Yeah, get on the ball, Esquire. Come on. Yeah, I don't know what they were waiting for. But, you know, we mentioned technology earlier. And as photo printing technology improves throughout this period, the painted hand airbrushed pinup gets retired. And you also have to take into account what's going on culturally in the context of the time and the fact that as more women post-war into the 50s, 60s, and 70s are entering the workforce and starting to join up with second-wave feminism, 
Pinups are no longer an acceptable thing to have in the workplace. You can't just be hanging up your naked lady calendar where other ladies can see it. Yeah, that was one thing a uh, pinup collector commented saying, before the 70s and those feminists, no one thought there was anything wrong with these beautiful gals. Oh, the good old days of sexual harassment. It's oh. true, before there was even a term for sexual harassment, Caroline. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to the heyday of pinups, before we leave them behind, wow. While Vargas does get a lot of the glory, there were some notable female pinup artists at work that we want to spotlight as well, who arguably created more physically precise pinups. And we're going to talk about those ladies when we come right back from a quick break. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I, I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. Okay, the new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman have never been more hilarious as America's favorite moms turned gangsters, Beth, Ruby, and Annie. Already this season, there have been some big twists and breathtaking surprises. The fans love it, and the critics do, too. Variety calls good girls addictive and audacious. Entertainment Weekly says it's just what you need, and Rotten Tomatoes certifies good girls 100% fresh. So, if you've missed any of the new season, get yourself online and stream it now. And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. So Kristen mentioned the lady pinup painters who were in the game and whether they were more precise with their art, whether they were more precise in depicting a woman's body. Because, you know, we already talked about how the male artist would lengthen the legs, boost the bust, all of that stuff. And so were these women doing the same thing? While they certainly were presenting uh, sort of an idealized version of a woman's body through their art, they were creating sort of more anatomically correct figures. Yeah, and they usually weren't as overtly sexy. They were very beautiful, and they were still sexy, but not as va-va-va-voom, perhaps, as, say, a Varga girl. And this is coming from a fantastic article by sociologist Lisa Wade, and we cite all the time on the podcast. Um, she wrote this over at Collectors Weekly, and she really highlights three... Really successful golden age pinup painters, Pearl Fresh, Joyce Ballantine, and Zoe Mozart. And Zoe 
was probably the most publicly visible of the three, both in terms of publicity and also pinup art itself. And she was a character. Well, yeah. And the reason she was so visible is because she herself was a pinup model. Yeah. Whether for other artists or for her own art. And I think that's so fascinating. And she was teeny tiny. She was like, what, 4'11". She was described as like an 85-pound spitfire at one point. Um, but yeah, she was incredibly interested in the female form, uh, sometimes to the point of body snarking. For instance, she ranked women movie stars of the time. Her favorites included Ida Lupino, Jean Crane, and Mary Anderson, but she was not as approving of Veronica Lake. Yeah, no, she had like very specific criteria for what she considered the perfect female body. And she started out painting cosmetic ads and funny side note, used her brother Bruce and her sister Marcia to model as couples. And Bruce was her favorite lip model. So in all these cosmetic ads targeted to women, if you know, you had like the disembodied lips, those were Bruce's lips. Yeah. You know, getting all glammed up. Yeah, there was an ad that's it's basically just the head. It's the, the painting of just a woman's face and her hair, and she's got her head tilted back to fully illustrate her full, shiny lips. And yeah, those full, shiny lips belong to her. I wonder if she made him wear the lipstick. Do you think he had to wear lipstick, or do you think she just kind of... Oh, she was good. I bet she. Um, I bet. I bet he didn't have to wear the lipstick. Um, but, but maybe, she, maybe he wanted to. He might have wanted to. You know, <laughs> we don't know that much about <laughs> Bruce Mozart, uh, but we do know that Zoe blew up painting advertisements and magazine covers. She quickly made a name for herself. But when it came to Esquire, they passed her over because at one point she thought that she was going to be tapped to replace. Vargas, but Esquire was like, thanks, but no thanks. But she did find steady work with Brown and Bigelow, which was the nation's biggest calendar company. Because remember, these advertising calendars that usually were decorated with pinups were still very big business at the time. And not only did she create images for the calendars, but she also created pinup mutoscope cards for World War II troops. And I had to look up what a mutoscope was. And it's basically, just imagine like, you know, how we had those little view Viewfinder, clicky clicky viewfinders in the 80s. The clicky clacks. Yeah, whatever they're called. Uh, they were red and they had a little thing and you clicked them and it went to the, the clackety. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, a mutoscope was like a giant version of that. So instead of looking at moving images on a screen, you would have an individual experience. So it was like a like an old school Google Glass, but just the only thing you could see was babes. Right. Okay. Google babes. Google babes. Um, well, Mozart, after making lots of Google babes, moved to Hollywood and Paramount Pictures shot a short film, which I know that is a tongue twister, listeners. <laughs> they shot a short film with her for its unusual occupation series. And this is when it talked about how she not only was a uh, Zilly Mozart, pinup artist, but also a model, too. Yeah, they had her... Uh, posed in one of the images wearing the same little costume that the woman in her painting was was wearing. And and she told somebody later, like, well, I mean, that's great and all, but I would never be able to paint a painting in the way they posed me. That's just ridiculous. And there's also a photograph of her painting the image for the Jane Russell movie Outlaw, where Jane Russell's reclined and she's got her like little like Western get up and she's holding a gun. Um, so that's a pretty famous image, which you should also 
also that's another Google babe. Yeah, that that's should. that's an yeah an actual Google image babe. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, Zoe was quoted as saying, "My whole life centered around men and art. Men were easy to come by, and my paintings were my children." So she was she was because she was married what four times. Yeah, she was yeah. pretty dedicated to her art. So. Yeah, and funnily enough, she also wished that male pinups were a thing. She once said, "It's a shame nobody wanted to hang up pictures of beautiful men in their garages, but business was business, and one had to meet the demand." Yeah, I mean, if the ancient Greeks could sculpt a beautiful, athletic male nude, yeah, why can't we have male pinups? Calendars. Well, well, there were beefcake photos. Yeah. But, you know, moms of the day weren't allowed to hang those up in the kitchen in their their exclusive space. Yeah, in their sphere. Um, Well, moving to Pearl Frush, she's kind of more of a uh, mysterious character when compared to Zoe, mostly because... Her paintings didn't really hold up, not in terms of style, but just literally, uh, she was creating these watercolors that was, that were difficult to reproduce on a large scale. Yeah, and she was super technically skilled with her photorealism, and she was best known for that calendar art in the 1950s. And what's really notable about Pearl Frush is not only how beautiful these women are that she paints, but also how athletic they are as well. Um, They're swimming, they're canoeing, they're playing tennis. She had this one particular aquatic series Mm -hmm. that did really well. And I thought it was, it's just interesting to see how she loved to see her beautiful women in action. But yeah, that aquatic series actually broke records for the publisher. And so it's not like she was just painting it for her own enjoyment. People really clamored to get these athletic beauties. And then we have Joyce Ballantyne, who is actually, you, you've probably seen this, she's best known for the Coppertone Girl ad for which her daughter modeled. Yeah, and even though, you know, everybody knows her as, you know, the Coppertone artist and it helped put her on the map, ultimately later in life, it bummed her out that that was her signature work because she said, quote, and it's just another baby ad, kind of boring, yeah, well, not to mention people for decades now have been banging down her daughter's door to interview her about having her butt shown. I know, being the copper tone baby. Um, and, and Joyce also, though, experienced career sexism early on. So she was very talented from a young age. And at one point she enters this art contest and wins. And the prize is a scholarship to the Disney School for Animation. But when the Disney rep gets little Joyce on the phone to say, hey, congratulations, let's plan your trip out here. She's turned away once the representative realizes that she is a she, because Disney was like, oh, wait, yeah, mm, no, we don't really allow girls to come out here and do this. And if you want to learn more about that, we have done a great podcast on the women behind Disney. But yeah, she was basically told, no, women have babies. Yeah. You don't, you're, you're a poor investment. Um, but despite that, 
Uh, she was well respected among other top name pinup artists, particularly during her stint at Stevens Gross Studio, where she was part of what was called the Sunblum Circle, named for Coke Santa creator Haddon Sunblum. She was also super close pals with Gil Evgren, who's a fellow pinup artist, and she and Elgren even posed for each other because Ballantine was also big on painting dudes. Yeah. Zoe wasn't the only person who liked to paint dudes. Well, you know, I mean, I would imagine that if only for variety's sake, you might want to paint a fella every now and then. Um, but Ed Franklin, a friend of hers, said she was an icon for a woman in a man's world. And she kind of got what was considered pigeonholed into advertising art because this was the I mean, earliest of the Mad Men seasons days where everything was being done by hand. You don't have photo technology to the point that you're having these, you know, glossy images being reproduced. It's people like Joyce and Pearl and Zoe who are painting the actual ad campaigns. And so her work was featured in all sorts of advertisements for big name companies, including Coke. Yeah, and her take, uh, Joyce's take in particular on the pinup was that she said the trick is to make a pinup flirtatious. She said she always made sure, even for her stuff that was featured in Esquire and Penthouse, she always made sure to have clothes or at least a towel covering up some of the lady bits because she says that she wasn't into the whole quote-unquote dirty thing that Penthouse and Playboy were doing at the time. Well, and that kind of segues us into... The next thing we want to talk about, which is what do these incredibly popular then and now images of these idealized women really say about the time and also about us today in female sexuality? Um, because pinup dealer Marion Ole Phillips on those three female pinup artists said, I think they would consider themselves feminists and the thing is, feminism, as we mentioned earlier, was partly blamed for the demise of pinups in the 1970s, although more in reality, it probably had a lot more to do with Playboy, more explicit pornography and photo reproductive technology. Um, but there are arguments that pinup imagery, both then and today in this kind of pinup nostalgia, like what you're talking about uh, earlier with the Vanity Fair mm-hmm. photo spreads, does have tinges of feminism embedded in it. Yeah. Um, Maria Elena Buzek, who we mentioned earlier, does argue that we, culturally, have a lot to learn from pinups, as pinup interpretation is one of the myriad ways, she says, in which women have defined, politicized, and represented their own sexuality in the public eye, and similarly how feminism has shaped women's sexuality. Yeah, and she wrote an entire book about this called Pinup Girls. That's girl as in uh, the riot girl, girl with no eye. Feminism, sexuality, and pop culture. And she argues that pinups embrace both the normative, because these are ladies going about their typical feminine business, and the transgressive, because it also shows women being sexual. So it presents this taboo for mass pop cultural consumption. And Buzak goes on to talk about how the pinup girl occupies this sort of gray area between portraiture, which is respectable, 
and pornography, which is obviously not respectable to most people. But she says it's too prurient to ever be considered fine art, even though the quality of the photorealistic portraiture people like Pearl Frush and her athletes were technically impeccable. Yeah, and that's one thing that we haven't even touched on at all is how it's starting, I think it was in the late 80s or early 90s when these pinup collectors start coming out of the woodwork and this question arises of, well, is this art? Because it had never really been considered art worthy of any kind of critique because it was commercial and it was sexy. Right, yeah, so even when, whether it was a woman like Zoe Mozart or somebody like Vargas, Even when they created a beautiful image that was an oil painting, like a big scale painting, that stuff was just thrown out with the garbage in a lot of cases because it was like, oh, well, okay, great. This is your rough draft. We've printed copies of it. It made it into the calendar this year. We don't need it anymore. And now, though, because there is a market for those originals, I mean, if you can get your hands on a Vargas, then you're going to you could make a lot of money at an art auction. Um, But speaking of Vargas, though, when we consider the pinups, in World War II and how they were used to sell and propel the war effort. Speaking to the New York Times, Buzek calls pinups modern war goddesses. So, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty powerful kind of statement to make. And in her book, Pinup Girls, Buzek talks about how, quote, the Varga girl presented the American public with a heretofore unheard of combination of conventional beauty, blatant sexuality, professional independence, and wholesome patriotism that resembled the similar contradictory cocktail of attributes cultivated by young women of the period. Yeah, so she was a bundle of contradictions. Yeah. She was wholesome, but having her dress lifted up. You know, she was innocent and sort of vacant, but sexy and beautiful. Um, she could be used to advertise Schlitz, or she could be used to inspire people to go to war. Yeah, and... There was in that New York Times article, you know, they're talking to Busek, who's very rah-rah about these pinups, calling them modern war goddesses. But then there was an older woman they were talking to. Um, I forget if it was an art critic or art historian. And she was saying, you know, because she lived during this time when these pinups were everywhere, she was saying, I mean, but at the same time, those were our idealized women. Those were the the types of women that we strived to look like. That was our standard. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, put yourself in the in the shoes of someone who's living 50, 60, 70 years from now, looking back at like our Gucci ads and calling them, you know, revolutionary and feminist and, and sexy. And it's like, well, it's it's more complicated than that. It's not just feminist or not feminist, sexy or not sexy, exploitive or not exploitive. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of gray area when it comes to the philosophy behind what we ourselves are projecting onto these pinup girls. Well, and there, there's definitely been in more recent years this attempt at reclamation because there are a number of women who are not only just drawn to the pinup aesthetic, um, but also find it very empowering. And it's worth noting, too, that Lisa Wade in that Collector's Weekly article reported that there are more female pinup collectors than male. But they're even not, beyond just collecting images. There are these now specialized pinup photography studios. There's one here in Atlanta um, that are set up 
for women to come and get dressed up and have these super sexy, vintage photos taken of them. Yeah. Um, Sophie Spinell, who's the founder of San Francisco's Shameless Photography, told the Huffington Post that they're trying to create sexy, feminist, body-positive images. And she says, the most important audience for the Shameless pinup series is the models themselves. I hope that when they look at these images, they can see how truly powerful, inspiring, and soul-deep, beautiful they really are. And it's, it's sort of reclaiming a different kind of femininity, what the New York Times style section calls a hip femininity of not following along with the Kate Mosses or the Giselles or whoever, like the tall, skinny figure that is unattainable for so many people, especially if you're just short. (laughs) You're never going to be nine feet tall. But if that's the image you grew up looking at, it's almost like looking at the image of a pinup model who already does have hips and a butt and boobs. It's like, well, I have those things. We can work with this. Yeah, I I think that that's really what resonates is that this modern day pinup revival, even stretching into rockabilly culture and style, is very more body friendly for a lot of women. Those styles are incredibly flattering on more curvaceous frames. Yeah. And so, I mean, I would argue that, I mean, there's a lot of argument on the Internet under this Huffington Post article in particular about whether pinup imagery is feminist or not. And I think that if something empowers you, it's none of my business whether it empowers you or not. Good for you. Good for you, not for me. That whole quote that we've cited before on the podcast. Um, but it, it, there is something nice about people being able to through whatever means, take pride in their own figures and feel comfortable in their own skin. Yeah. And the New York Times style piece also suggests that there is a comfort to in the visual familiarity of those kinds of styles. And it's understated sexuality. It's hyper feminine. But at the same time, it's not like extremely explicit. You know, you have you're still you're still covered, but it's accenting your feminine curves and not just displaying your skin. Well, it seems to also it's it's coinciding with the Zoe Deschanel's of the world who are saying I can wear a Peter Pan collar and still be a feminist. You know, it's the it's the whole attitude of the third waivers who are saying, "No, I'm not rejecting femininity. I'm embracing who I am and what I look like." And this pinup culture just seems to be sort of parallel to all that. But meanwhile, Andrea Dworkin, not surprisingly, is having none of this pinup appreciation. So a little bit of background. The Spencer Art Museum at the University of Kansas was gifted the massive Esquire um, photo collection containing so many of Vargas's pieces. And so they, you know, they, they get all this work and so there are all these essays commissioned by the museum to analyze and critique this pinup imagery and, and particularly these Varga girls and kind of place them in art history. And Dworkin 
is just so enraged by the entire thing. And, and she actually, I mean, she's the one also who is specifically commissioned to write uh, a piece about this. This is not her just like off on the side saying, no, 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 shaking her finger. So at one point she writes, Vargas's subject or object, to be more precise, is some lazy, fetishistic view of white women, pale women, usually blonde. The drawing itself delineates the boundaries of non-existence, a white female non-entity. Yeah, basically saying that this is just an empty vessel for us to pour all of our masturbatory fantasies into. She goes on to say that this is a Sambo-like representation of white women and noting the predominance of blonde hair. She does go so far as to mention that Americans weren't the only ones during World War II to have these images that Germans had their own equivalent too, and she goes so far as to say that Germans and Americans are fighting for the same Aryan image. Oh, goodness. Yeah, and so she concludes, I don't know why Vargas did these drawings except for the money and hatred of women, including women of color. So she sees no value in it whatsoever, to the point of uh, saying in the essay, University of Kansas, you didn't even have to accept these, this donation, this gift. But you took it anyway. And so you're playing into the whole system. Um, Andrea Dworkin, though, for those of you who aren't familiar with her, is has been staunchly anti-pornography for years. So this is very much in line with you know, the rest of her body, her broader body of work. Um, but she does make a really good point, particularly in terms of that idealization of that usually blonde white woman. I mean, that that's the thing that jumped out to me, too, while researching this and thinking about all of those pinups that were on my wall. It was just it's all white women. All of them. <laughs> but it's it's not it's the furthest thing from the truth to say that black pinups and black sexuality did not exist in media. Um, we were looking at yeah, Sydney F. Lewis writing over at babycenter.com had a fascinating column about black pinups because she she starts out by talking about how, you know, she was just looking into it. You know, were there black pinups? Maybe there was too much uh, exclusion from the industry based on race. So maybe they weren't even permitted to to model or to, you know, be performers in burlesque shows like white women were. But as she's doing her research and she comes across old issues of Jet magazine in the 50s, she's like, oh, wait, no, there's a bajillion of these beautiful, sexy women of color doing the same type of modeling that white women were doing. It's just that white people weren't consuming it, so it didn't become part of the larger mainstream. Yeah, I mean, there was even the Jet calendar, which had the uh, very saucy tagline, score with a Jet mate every month. But And again, very similar kinds of pinup posing. Um, in 1964, uh, black photographer Howard Moorhead made an entire photo essay called Gentlemen Prefer Bronze, celebrating the black pinup. And Jim Lindemann, also writing about this over at Collectors Weekly, talks about how, yes, these images existed, particularly in African-American publications like Jet Magazine, but they were more broadly considered to be pornographic. They were more 
specialty because of, you know, all of all the things we've talked about before on the podcast in terms of the hypersexualization of women of color for time immemorial. And that is still alive and well during the mid-century when this is happening. So Lindemann writes, the 1966 pussycat calendar of black pinups is just like the white pinup calendars found in gas stations. But this was produced by pornographer Reuben Sturman rather than, for example, your favorite brand of gasoline additive. Because it's almost like the way that black pinups and uh, these images were treated. It's almost like, oh, well, no, the, the blonde white woman who is essentially naked, if not you know, totally naked. Um, no, that, that's a pure form of sexuality that's been, that's been used to inspire people to do great things. Whereas, uh, apparently, according to the way that these things are produced, like, well, no, the black sexuality is scary, though. And that's, well, that's not for, for consumption. For white consumption. Right. Like, so, so it's fine, and it's not going to be behind a brown cover if it's in a jet magazine, because those are black people looking at that. So that's okay. But if you're a white guy and you have, uh, you know, a black pinup calendar hanging up in your garage, then, whoa, dude, you're incredibly deviant. Mm-hmm. What are you into? Oh, just beauty. Okay. So as vacant as that old school pinup imagery might seem to be, I think we can conclude, Caroline, that there are definitely layers to her. Mm-hmm. There are layers to that duck face. Yeah. What would you tell your, your college decorating self now if you were to walk into younger Kristen's apartment and see those pinups on the wall? I mean, I don't think I'd freak out. I would just be like, oh, man, you got to get out of this apartment. This apartment <laughs> is so sad. It was really like just the saddest apartment. It had like one small window and just stained carpet. It was the last college apartment that I lived in. Um, so re- honestly, the pinups were the last of my worries <laughs> at the time. Yeah. But I don't. Yeah. I mean, I can't. As we're going to talk about in our next episode on Betty Page, I, I get to a line with trying to, you know, endow too much meaning into these images too. Yeah, I mean they were made they were made to sell things. Yeah, and they did. But I, I do think it's really fascinating and want to hear from listeners about, you know, how this this nostalgia for pinups that is very much alive and well today. And if there there is any kind of if there are any kinds of conflicted feelings about that. Or if you love pinups, let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast, hashtag PinUpsWeek, or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair. I can definitely relate to the confidence part because... If my hair is doing something a little weird, something I don't want it to do, then I I can't stop thinking about it the rest of the day. Oh my God, we've all been there. Pantene's Rosewater Collection feels and smells amazing and comes with a deep treatment that leaves your hair petal soft. It was inspired by Ramadan traditions when many in the Middle East break the fast with rosewater because of its hydrating benefits. And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. Your hair doesn't look really great. Thank you. I actually worked in a place for a while that was very sensitive environmentally and we weren't allowed to use shampoos that had sulfate in them. So that's something that I look for these days. 
And bonus, I love the way that my hair looks now. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. Here's the thing. Saving money with GEICO is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. Well, I have a letter here from Jasmine about our Trophy Wives episode. She says, when I first read the title, I had an image in my head that was completely different than the one you described. I thought of my experience in college where both men and women were looking for their picture-perfect match, where the future lawyer meets the other future lawyer and they get engaged days before graduation. She, in turn, becomes the trophy wife in that she no longer focuses on becoming a lawyer, but instead the perfect housewife. She'll host all the dinner parties and is a symbol that he has it all. The perfect job and life at home. I remember hearing women claim that they only came to college to find a husband. Jasmine, I remember hearing that too. Uh, she goes on to say, I was pleasantly surprised that your episode touched on everything but my original thought. It's a really good example of how the trophy wife is a stereotype we choose to see but isn't really there. Maybe people just marry the person they're compatible with and we just have to put them into a category and label them. Thanks for taking the time to go more in depth on the topic. I really enjoy listening to your podcast. Thanks, Jasmine. Well, I've got a letter here from Julia about our Divorced Women podcast. And her letter is a little bit long, but I want to read the whole thing because she has some really important stuff to say. So she writes... Love the podcast. I found the Divorced Women episode very interesting, but I was disappointed that you didn't really address the young divorcee. I was in my late 20s when I got divorced in 2008 after only three years of marriage. I looked for resources to help me with what I found to be a truly devastating event, but everything I found, books, support groups, divorce care, websites, were geared towards separated and divorced women and men with children, complicated legal and or custody situations, and lots of assets they had to split. I understand why this is, but it would have been nice to not feel like a childless, divorced loser who was totally alone. More disheartening, however, was that so many people I knew didn't seem to take my divorce very seriously. I was in a lot of pain, and some people treated my marriage as a, quote, starter marriage. The reaction seemed to be that I should have been able to just brush myself off and start dating again, and that because I was young, it wasn't that big of a deal to have my whole world turned upside down. The advice I found online and in books mirrored what I was hearing from friends and acquaintances. I had never heard of starter marriages before, and I found some media resources that suggested this was a new trend at the time. Young people get married, try it out for a few years to practice their relationship skills, then get divorced on a whim and later pursue marriage that they intend to take seriously. I would like to know where this idea came from. Although I was the first person I knew to get divorced in my 20s, as the years have passed, I've witnessed more and more of my relatively young friends getting divorced, and I can say for sure that none of them did it on a whim. It's a painful, life-altering process, and I can't imagine that any of my friends would have ever described their failed marriages as starter marriages. I also want to share a theory about why women in heterosexual marriages file for divorce more often. 
Again, this may apply largely to the younger crowd, but in my case and in the cases of my divorced friends, the wife always filed because the husband simply wouldn't do it. Even when the husband was the one who wanted the separation and wouldn't agree to work on the relationship, even when he moved out, cut marital ties, was living with another woman, etc., he would not file for divorce. These men didn't want to be married, but they didn't seem to want to be divorced either. The wife always had to actually file the paperwork after waiting months for the husband to do it. My theory is that men of the younger generation are accustomed to women taking the initiative in almost every aspect of the romantic and domestic relationships, and they're willing to wait it out to avoid doing the work. I guess that's a nice way of saying that men are lazy. In my case, I believe it was also because my ex-husband wanted to be able to tell people that I was the one who filed in order to paint himself in a better light. Anyway, keep up the good work. I'll keep listening. So while I'm not going to endorse a broad brush stereotype that men are lazy, Julia, everything else I think is really important. We didn't talk about the young divorcees, and that's something that I've observed as well um, among my friend circle of knowing, uh, you know, seeing, going to, you know, friends' weddings and now knowing them uh, in their new post-divorce um, statuses. So more resources, it sounds like, are definitely needed. And we also need to kill this myth of the starter marriage. So curious to hear from other folks who might have experienced similar things, too. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And again, for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with all of our links, if you want to see more pics of those Varga girls, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. So here's something that some of you might find shocking. 95% of women don't feel good about their hair, but Pantene is changing that. Pantene's Rosewater Collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the Rosa Gallica plant. With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction. And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh. Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC. The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.